you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and joining me this month to talk about the brand new, but also kind of old, Treasury Edition, famous first edition, new fun comics number one, is my pal, professor of pop culture studies at Bowling Green State University, Chuck Coletta. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. This is so exciting. You've done a bunch of other Fire and Water podcast shows, but this is your first appearance on Treasury Cast. Uh, so this is really cool. I'm really excited to have you here. Well, I'm glad to be here. I, I, I love the format. Thanks for having this show, too. Oh, thank you very much. Well, that's the perfect segue. It's before we get to the book that we're going to talk about, which, as I mentioned, is the brand new release, famous first edition, New Fun Comics number one, which DC put out to celebrate their its 85th anniversary, which is, again, for those of you who don't know, New Fun Comics number one is the very first comic book ever published by the company that would become DC Comics. Uh, Chuck, I have to ask you, you and I are around the same age, so you grew up around the same time with the Treasuries in their, in their heyday. So like, what is your history with this particular format? Well, I still have my first two that I got. The very first one I have, it's beat to hell, but it's <laughs> the, uh, Superman movie ver- the Superman movie uh, with Christopher Reeve and right. Marlon Brando, that gotcha. big treasury. And I just poured over that over and over and over again. And I think the first one that I, my parents must have bought me that. I must have been not eight or nine when that came out. And the first one I remember buying was the Fortress of Solitude. Oh, where yeah. Superman, And then I never, I think that might have been one of the last ones. But yeah, I, I picked is, them yeah. up along the way. But I, I loved those things. I, was, I came in right as the digests were going. I had a lot right. of the digests. Have you gone back and bought some other ones later on, like as a, you know, eBay or whatever? I, I, I bought mostly the DC ones, not all of them, uh, but the, uh, the the early action and Batman and a lot of those ones with the super villains and I, th- th- those are the ones I liked. But I, I didn't realize until your show just how many there were out there. I never mm-hmm. really thought about it, but my God, I I hope they're coming back, maybe I- slightly. I hope so. I hope. I mean, it said Marvel has been doing some recently. They've been doing these sort of hybrid, kind of like absolute edition sort of these the right. Silver Surfer that they put out, which is really more of a trade paperback and stuff like that. And then DC has been doing these uh, replicas, these hardcover replicas. They did a couple of years ago. They did Superman versus Muhammad Ali and the Bible, and now uh, later on they're doing Superman versus uh, Wonder Woman. But this book. Uh, famous for again, it's famous first edition number C sixty three, and I'm going to get into that little detail in a moment. But this is famous first edition, uh, reprinting New Fun Comics number one. As I said, it was to commemorate uh, DC Comics's first publication, which is this book. It came out eighty five years ago. And before we even get into the details of this this book, this is a handsome edition. I mean, I am really impressed that DC did this because. 
this book is a bunch of essentially newspaper strips done in, in, in printed in a comic book, which was the style at the time. This is before superheroes. So like, I'm kind of amazed that DC did this because I can't imagine it has much commercial appeal. There's no Superman here. There's no Batman. There's that. I mean, it really is just features that I think that only diehard collectors like ourselves really would be interested in. So hats off to DC for doing this in the first place. Right. Congratulations. I mean, I, I hope this sells. You know, go on Amazon or wherever and buy it, everybody, because I'd like to see all of the other famous first editions in hardback. I, I'd like that at least, at the very least. Yeah, would, well, that, it's funny that you say that because a lot of the famous first editions do exist as hardcovers. Oh. They were published in the 70s uh, by a company called Lyle Stewart, and I actually have most of them. They wow. Are, yeah, they, are, they came with dust jackets and everything. Uh, they are very hard to find, very, have, very uh, hard to find. I have a copy somewhere. I don't think it's treasury size, but they did in the 80s a uh, the Monster Society of Evil with Captain Marvel yes. and Shazam. I have that, but that's a, that's a beautiful uh, edition too, but my God, this, this is this one in front of us today. This is really great. Yeah, they really, really did a nice job. It's got this this overleaf. Uh, it's got this dust jacket cover and reprints the cover of New Fun Number One. And basically, what Chuck and I are going to do is just we're just going to go through all the strips in this book again. For those of you who don't know what New Fun Comics Number One was, it was you know at the time comic books did not exist. Basically, there was <laughs> there was not a format other than a couple of random uh, publications here and there. But this. Uh, the, the, this was the brainchild of this major Wheeler Nicholson uh, guy who was into publishing, and he came up with the idea of putting in new material. This was the first time anybody had ever done such a thing as putting new material. So they didn't have a concept of like, you know, eight page stories. So this book consists of just a series of one page strips, and there's like 20 features in this book, and they're all just one page, and they read. Like uh, they read like you would have read the Sunday funnies and they were printed at a treasury size. Again, nobody thought that comic books, there weren't, there, there, there just weren't comic books back then. And so no one thought, oh, we're going to do them at a norm, at a regular size. There was no regular size. So of course, when this was published, it was published at a full size, the same size you would get at a, as a new, at a newspaper. So that is why this thing exists in the size that it is. And it features this great logo of this little like elfin creature yelling right. into a microphone, yelling new fun. And there's an intro by Jerry Bales. Now, of course, Jerry Bales passed away a couple of years ago. But as we you, you read later on, you find out that originally DC Comics was going to reprint new fun number one as part of their Millennium series at the turn of the century. But because of some copyright issues with Oswald the Rabbit, which is a Disney <laughs> character, apparently they didn't have the rights to Oswald and they would have had to remove Oswald from the reprint. And I guess DC just thought, well, unless you can reprint the book exactly how it appeared, what's the point of doing it? So the whole thing was scrapped. So this Jerry Bales intro, which is uh, the title is The Start of Something Big, was also scrapped. And then, of course, in the meantime, Mr. Bales passed away. And they kept it, and so now they're reprinting it here because Oswald the Rabbit is included in this in this book. And then there features a second intro by Roy Thomas uh, where he talks about, again, the Jerry Bales intro, talks about the famous first editions. And then right after that is a little handwritten note from uh, one of the editors. And it, apparently this note was included in the boxes of the comic book sent to newspaper 
vendors saying, hey, we hope you like this. This is something new and exciting, and maybe we'll be able to kind of start a new thing here. And it's incredible. I'm, I'm amazed that that note still exists somewhere. Oh, my God. I mean, oh how, I mean this, is, this is a piece of paper written in 1935. How, I mean, it boggles the mind that someone thought to photograph this and keep it. 85 years later. Oh, my God. Well, I'm glad they did. I'm glad they oh, did. Yeah. That's, that's why you need archives and uh, libraries and things to keep all this stuff, because who would have ever guessed that someone would be talking about that note 85 years later? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's unreal. And it talks about that the, the reading age for this, what they hope is from 2 to 90. That's the catchphrase. <laughs> and that's the idea is that this thing has all different kinds of strips to hopefully appeal to everybody. That is the idea. So for a, uh, a whole dime, you got <laughs> like 40 pages of material. And the opening cover uh, is a strip itself by a, a Western character named Jack Woods. It's the only strip – well, not the only strip, the back cover. But it's basically the only – this is one of only two strips that appears in, in color. The rest are going to be in black and white because, again, this was – they didn't think that you could do color back then affordably. Um, Jack Woods – it's pretty standard Western. The right. one, the one piece that I like is there's a panel here where one guy is throwing another guy, and it says, "As they enter, Jack suddenly grabs Miguel's arm and yanks him forward over his back." And the way it's drawn is, <clears throat> it looks like it's like an instructional manual, kind of. Right. Like, it's like an, it's incredibly stiff, but it makes me laugh just the way it's almost like this is how you would throw someone over your shoulder if you know if you need to know how to do it. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, and all these strips, by the way, are continuing. Like, you know, the none of they're they're all good. they're all meant to be continued onto the next issue. So I mean, you're not getting complete stories. This is just like a one segment, like you would uh, in any other newspaper strip. And then on the inside cover, there's a little article where it says "New Fun." Hello, everybody. Here's the new magazine you've been waiting for, and it talks about uh, all the strips you're about to see, and it gives you a little in, a little uh, table of contents, a little indicia there. There's a coupon where you can subscribe to more issues of New Fun. So God knows how many kids mauled this oh. incredibly valuable comic book uh, so they could subscribe to this thing. Well, you know, I, I'm glad you said about it, they're all being continuing strips, because that's what was popular yeah. at the time. You know, Siegel and Schuster wanted Superman for the newspaper strips, right, and right. Dick Tracy, and Little Orphan Annie, and Prince Valiant, and Terry and the Pirates, the, the, uh, even Popeye. Uh, mm-hmm. Those were, you know, adventure strips were the, were the sort of the king of the realm at the time, and so he's trying to, to copy that format, and he does a pretty good job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, right. Other than the humor strips, which are somewhat one-and-dones, all the adventure things are, are continuing. And so the first strip we have is something called Sandra of the Secret Service. And it is pretty much what it would sound like. It's like a woman as an agent. There's a sort of adventure thing where she gets kidnapped in, a, in like the back of, a, of a, uh, like a limo, and there's a shootout. And it's weird because this story seems to start almost like in media res. Like we're supposed to know who Sandra is already and like what the whole deal is. So I, I'm not familiar with this character at all. Uh, and so it's just kind of like I read it and I was like, um, uh, oh, okay. Like, I mean, like she gets kidnapped, then somebody puts a gun in her face, and that's the whole strip. Like, uh, all right, I, I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a lot of reaction to it because I just was like, I, I'm not sure who any of these people are. Maybe I'll find out later. Well, you know that, that that's the other thing about this these stories. They're all set up. So yes. you're just sort of you don't know who anybody is. There's there is you know to be continued with a cliffhanger ending, and I wish that they had sort of begun this one, for example, by explaining who she is and, you know, that she's in the Secret Service. It just really starts in the middle, and then it's over before you know yeah. it. Yeah, and also I'm, I'm curious as to what the Secret Service was, because it can't, it's not the Secret Service 
as we know it, like the, no. the, the group that protects the president, because there's there's nothing like that here. And also there were no women in the Secret Service in 1935. So I don't know who the Secret Service even really is in this context, but OK, uh, you know, you just read it, and you move on. To below, and below that, there is a three panel Oswald the rabbit strip. And uh, that is by Walt. There's that whole thing with Oswald the rabbit was that that was a character created by Walt Disney and it was stolen from him by another copy by another company and that uh, by the fact that Walt Disney got ripped off it led him to create uh, Mickey Mouse but it led him to put his own name over all of his characters after that so he could never get ripped off again so uh, Oswald the Rabbit appears here in this sort of just little it, it actually is sort of an ongoing thing as you'll see it runs on the bottom of every page for the first couple of pages and it's just Oswald skating and falling over and it's just various kind of hijinks but it's it's kind of weird that you've got this continued strip below other strips that are not continuing. Yeah, and, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, Disney has the rights back to Oswald now after all of these Oh, I didn't know that. These decades. I think he's in some of the parks that he walks oh, around. Wow. And, uh, and, and there are some video games with Oswald. But he's probably, and I don't know the history of him uh, all that well, but he was probably the most famous character in this entire this entire comic book. Uh, so, you know, it must have been a coup, or I don't know how they were able to, to wrangle that one. But it's, it's interesting to see. He is very much in the Mickey Mouse mode. Yeah, he's even got the pants with the buttons and stuff. I mean, yeah. it looks like Mickey Mouse, it's just with the rabbit ears. So. so the next strip is Jigger and Ginger, uh, which seems to be kind of like a, uh, like a gasoline alley kind of thing, right. just sort of like a warm family adventures. Um, I like the artwork a lot on this. It's actually... Actually reminds me quite a bit of Gasoline Alley in terms of that style. I mean, again, the story just seems kind of like you know America Americana kind of thing, and I mean, right. it didn't resonate a whole lot with me, but it was it was pretty to look at. No, and and I, I think that you're right. Uh, when I was reading through this, I, I do like old comic strips, and I collect Dick Tracy and the collections of Annie and Prince Valiant and things. A lot of these strips are homages or, or steals or right. nods to, yeah, uh, this, uh, this uh, strip is very much like Gasoline Alley, uh, which is still being published uh, today, uh, more than 100 years later. I didn't know that. And, That's amazing. Yeah, and Gasoline Alley was supposed to be um, just daily life, and this right. new thing, the car, had been invented, and that's what the, that's why it's called Gasoline Alley. Oh, um, it, <laughs> I never knew that either. <laughs> and and just for trivia's sake, in case anybody, the uh, there was a little boy in there named Skeezix, right? Um, and Skeezix grows up over time, so he's foundling in on the doorstep in a basket in 1920 or 1918, uh, and he goes to World War II. In, during the 40s, and now he's a grand. I think he's still alive somehow, but uh, Gasoline Alley is still still out there. That's a okay. You know, Chuck. Now I retroactively get the Mad Magazine parody of Gasoline Alley that I read years ago because the characters age from panel to panel in the in the parody, and right. I never I never got that joke. Now I get it. So yeah, that's so like they, thirty years later. So thank you, Chuck. <laughs> That's what I, that's what I'm here. That's what I'm here for. Perfect. So. Oh, by the way, I should mention to everybody there will be some images from this book on our website, FireAndWaterPodcast.com, on the gallery post. So you will be able to uh, see some of the the strips here that we're talking about. So the next strip is Barry O'Neill by someone named Lawrence Larrier. Larrier. I'm not sure how you say his last name. Uh, this is again kind of another adventure strip. It looks a little Dick Tracy-ish. Uh, yeah. It does feature a scene where he goes to. Uh, the Oriental Quarter of Paris, Fang Gao, and so there's some, you know, less than, <laughs> less than ideal 
depictions of uh, of Asian people, but but you know, okay, remember the context of, of what this was at the time. But I mean, again, I like the artwork quite a bit. Like it's it looks it's pretty well. He actually looks a lot like um, this Barry O'Neill guy. Looks a lot like uh, I think eighty eight keys from Dick Tracy. Right, right. And the, the one I, just by coincidence, I've been reading the uh, complete Terry and the Pirates collections over this uh, home quarantine, and it is very much inspired by that. Pat gotcha. Ryan and Terry, and they're going all over the Far East. Now, that is a masterpiece. If you, yes. Nobody's ever read that one. You should. The artwork by Kniff is wonderful. Yes. But you can see that this is a version of that. And, and it, hey, I, would read the, I, I would read this to see what happens next, next week, yeah, next yeah. month, next issue. Yeah, as I said, I, I like Darwin quite a bit. Um, the next one is The Magic Crystal of History, uh, and it features two kids who uh, have this magic ball, and it apparently, actually, in the end of the strip, sends them through time, and they end up in Egypt in 4000 BC. So this is really one of the few strips that actually features some sort of science, some sort of sci-fi right. element. Really, most of these strips are pretty much just adventure strips or humor strips, but this is straight-up sci-fi. It's, it's two kids traveling through time. Yeah, and, and the only other thing I would mention about this is, you know, time travel has always been popular, or yep. it seems like it's always been popular. Doctor Who and, you know, the time tunnel and all. This is one of those things that people are always going back to, and it, it was fun. It was cute. Yeah. I actually like the, uh, the little header, uh, because this is one of the ones that, like, it actually, I think, tells you the story of the strip in the header. Right. Because it's because the magic crystal of history on the left is the boy and the girl with the magic eight ball or whatever it is, magic crystal ball. And then on the far right are all these figures from history. You see Napoleon, you see like Ramses and uh, Ponce de Leon, I think. So to me, it's like you immediately get what this is. Like, oh, okay, they're going to go through history. Got it. All right, understand. Um, next up is Wing Brady, Soldier of Fortune, uh, <laughs> which is just another adventure strip, although this is kind of like a foreign legion kind of thing because right. they're out in the desert. Um, I, I liked again. I liked the artwork quite a bit. It's it's very heavy. Like it's they they almost look like woodcuts uh, in terms yeah. of like it's very deep in grain. So uh, I again, it's another one where I'm like, all right, it just continues on. But again, it's it was it's pretty to look at. I, I really like the heavy ink lines that this this artist uses. There, it's distinctive. Yeah. The only thing I would mention is that I, I wonder if that the Wing Brady character was supposed to be modeled on Gary Cooper. Because Gary uh, Cooper right. had been in a movie called, is it, Beaugest? Yep. About yep. the French Foreign Legion, which I have not seen. but And I'm sure it's probably from around this time period. So yep. I'm, yep. he had that kind of feel to me just looking at him. Yeah, that's probably right. So next up is Ivanhoe. Of course, everyone knows who Ivanhoe is by Sir Walter Scott. And this is, again, Ivanhoe was basically like alternate version of Prince Valiant. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same style where all the dialogue, there's no dialogue. It's all just captions done like almost like a silent film. So we, And Prince Valiant. That's still running today. That I know of is still going. So why not try Ivanhoe? Why not take another character from history you don't have to pay any rights for? That, that's right. And um, again, just to plug, um, the Prince Valiant is being reprinted in sort of, a, I would say it's close to these treasury-sized yeah, volumes. Yeah, oversized books, yeah. And they're beautiful. I mean, my God. I mean, it's like a Disney painting come to life, or a cartoon come to life. I, it's, but, but this was fun. You, and what you see here is like, you know, they're trying, you know, so we're here in, uh, in the, in the foreign, French Foreign Legion in the desert, and then you're in, in, uh, in the medieval times. They're trying to cover all their bases on lots of different time periods. If you don't like this, you know, just turn the page and there'll be something else, maybe. Absolutely. And speaking of that, talk about as different as you can. The next strip is a uh, Judge Perkins. It's a humor strip by someone who just calls themselves Bert. 
and it features some sort of old, just kind of old timer guy. He's got these big sort of like mustache mutton chop things, and he lives out in the country. And again, it's a humor strip. Art wise, it reminds me actually a lot of um, like Rick Geary, uh, that art that artist uh, who I always like, who kind of had this sort of Bigfoot humor style with this sort of exaggerated people and sort of proportions and stuff. Again, I don't really know what the deal is with Judge Perkins, other than he's the elected judge of Doodleville. Uh, whatever that means, <laughs> but I mean, again, it's it, it's a nice change up from Ivanhoe, which of course is very serious. The only thing that this uh, Judge Perkins reminded me of is there was an old comic strip from the teens and twenties called the Tunerville Trolley, Whoa. about a, a old conductor who rode a, a rattly uh, trolley car back and forth, and he looks like this main character in here. But I've never read that. I've seen pictures of it. But again, it's it's an uh, 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 an homage to a uh, old comic strip. Yeah, it looks like much, pretty much. Uh, next up is Don Drake on the planet Saro. I guess uh, yeah. now Don Drake, I've heard of. I don't. I've never read much of him, but I have heard of Don Drake. So I think is this. I, I don't know whether. I don't think this is the first appearance of Don Drake. I wonder if this is somebody they managed to do it for. For this, uh, you know, bring this character from somewhere else and put him in new f- in in new fun. Because again, I have heard of this character. Oh, I, you know, I haven't. Uh, that, that that that's interesting. I'd have to look that up. But uh, it it is kind of a Flash Gordony yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. It ends with uh, Don and Betty are trapped. What will happen? You're like, okay, <laughs> all right. And they they take on these robots and they're in like this sort of spaceship that looks like a a perisphere kind of thing. So, you know, again, it's a, your sort of basic adventure strip flash with some sci- obviously some sci-fi elements because they're flying through space. Uh, next up is Loco Luke. Nope, he didn't get his man by Jack A. Warren, which is a very very Bigfoot style strip about like a, a cowboy and again it looks they almost it looks like a an animated kind of thing but with some some slight a uh, little more involved line work kind of this is very disney-esque and again it's yeah. you could as you mentioned you talk about how these are all kind of like not you know not to be unkind but like knockoff versions of other things this is kind of what that is it's like okay it's a funny cowboy strip You're, that's probably you know, a pretty obvious thing that kids might like right you know and the western was enormous i think we yeah. forget today how popular westerns were I, I i always tell in my tv history class i think in one year in the 50s two-thirds of all primetime shows were westerns <laughs> so, so, so westerns you know, were like, uh, like 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 Rick Dalton, uh, but uh, they were uh, they were incredibly popular. So it's obvious. It's it's pretty. Uh, I don't say obvious. It's it's pretty uh, apparent that he was going to include one a western in here somewhere. Yeah, yeah. You want to cover everything. And then speaking of westerns, there's another western right. for the next feature. But this is a text feature called Spook Ranch by Roger <laughs> Furlong. And again, it's a two pages of just a text story with a couple of spot illustrations. Uh, and it's, a, it's just kind of like a mystery thing, but set in a western town. And the the, the other thing that I actually found more interesting was on the same uh, on this spread was an ad and it says which one gets the job and it's basically an an international correspondence school to teach you different disciplines uh, via the mail and i the reason i thought that was 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 interesting is that of course new fun comics was you ostensibly aimed at children and yet this ad is for adults i mean this is for adults that that are working adults and so i thought well they really were trying to appeal to everybody from two to ninety because the ads here are actually really aimed at much more, uh, much older people than, than kids. Because, you know, what does a kid know about a correspondence school? Well, that's right. There's an ad for razor blades in here yep. somewhere. Yep. And there's something about cooking. 
Um, and, uh, and the one, the thing, since we're talking about ads for a moment, the one that really shocked me the most was the Charles Atlas ad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had not realized that that, it's the same one we all grew up watching, yeah, reading. The guy getting sand kicked in his face? Yeah, I am. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's here. That, you know, I mean, but, but there are, it's interesting to look at the ads, that, that, because that tells you he was casting a wide net in terms of readership. It's not just for little kids. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next up is another strip called Scrub Hardy. Uh, which is, again, it's a kind of an adventure thing, although this has a sports angle. So, again, we're trying to cover all the bases here. Western, sci-fi, sports, you know, why not? I mean, this looks a little like, um, art-wise, it looks a little like Mutt and Jeff. Right, that's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, then you've got Jack Andrews, All-American Boy. Now, this confused me because I know Jack Armstrong, All-American Boy. That's thing from American culture. But I never heard of Jack Andrews, and I have to wonder if the person who did this strip was just completely – I mean, I guess All-American Boy is not a title you can copyright. But I was like, wait. And I did a Google search for Jack Andrews, All-American Boy, and found nothing except no. I found a lot for Jack Armstrong, All-American Boy. Right, and Jack Armstrong I, – I did the same thing. I looked him up, and Jack Armstrong got started in 1933 as well, I believe. So I don't know which came first. Yeah. Yeah. But but there, this was a very popular trope um, in popular culture, sort of the all-American boy. There was a character called Frank Merriwell um, in the uh, in the like the dime novels and some of the early pulps. And Frank Merriwell like went to Yale, and he was a great athlete, and he was the star of the campus. And his name was supposed to embody the three qualities that a good boy should have. He should be frank, he should be merry, and he should be well. He should be <laughs> physically active or physically fit. And th- there are dozens and dozens of Frank Merriwell stories out there, believe oh, it or not. okay. All right. Um, artwork-wise, I can't say much about it, but I did like the moment where it's Jack Andrews is a football player, and he's about to go out into the big game, and this mobster who looks like he's right out of Dick Tracy <laughs> just grabs him, and he basically hold on a minute, Andrews, I want to talk to you. We're sort of anxious for you boys to lose, Andrews. Here's 200 bucks if you say take it easy. What do you say? And Jack Andrews goes, what do I say? And the next panel, he decks the guy. This is what I say. And if we lose the game, it won't be my fault. And I love, like, the money's flying in all directions. <laughs> That's great. And, and, you know, and this is, um, they're not even wearing face masks. This is the era when they're still wearing the leather helmet. The yeah, leather helmet. Yeah. So this is that long ago. Yeah, this is Leatherheads from the George Clooney right. movie, yeah. <laughs> Um, so next up is there's a little article about a bathysphere, and then it does feature that Jack Ar- that uh, the insult that made a man out of Mac thing Charles Atlas had, which yeah, like you said, I had no idea this went, it went back this far that this strip is that old. I mean, good lord, think about how long they ran this strip in the back oh. of comic book. They were running this into like the seventies. So whoever drew this. They were. They, I hope that guy got. I'm sure he didn't, but I mean, I hope he got paid for every time they reused this strip because the dang thing ran for 40 years. Right. You know, I, I have to. I should look up. You know, Jack Armstrong was probably long dead by the time I was reading these comics, but they, but he was still looking pretty good, I guess. Yeah, so. it's amazing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I had no idea Charles Atlas went back that far. So then there's an article about sports by someone named Joe uh, Joe Ar, Ar, Archibald, and there's some there's some there's like a little spot illustration about hockey. There's another little ad about uh, an ad for uh, Jack puts one over on his boyfriend, which I don't think means what they no. thought it means at the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's an article on the radio and in the movies, and they're talking about, again, uh, the aerial 
metal heroes, and they talk about Tom Mix. There's an article. There's an ad for Learn Music the Quick and Easy Way. So you're like, it's all right. sorts of stuff. Then there's a thing on model aircrafts about aviation. And again, you have to remember, Charles Lindbergh in 1935 oh. was one of the big heroes of American culture. So aviation was a huge thing, you know, for, for kids. Right. You know, for, for a generation of people before World War II and all the problems he got involved with that, yeah. Charles Atlas was the greatest American alive. Charles Lindbergh. Hero, Charles, Lindbergh. Sorry, Charles, Charles Lindbergh was the greatest uh, hero alive, and yeah. uh, every kid in America wanted to be yep. uh, Charles Lindbergh. Yep. There's an ad for how to reduce your weight by eight inches by with a weight belt, which <laughs> I doubt really works, but what the hell. Uh, then there's a model ship thing where you could teach you how to build a model ship and again you're i think you're supposed to actually like cut it out of your comic book or something or or cut parts of it out to use a sort of a uh, like a right. design and it's like again you're you're ruining something that's going to be very valuable just so you can build your cheap little model boat uh <laughs> speaking of boats there's captain eric which is another ship which is like a, a seafaring strip it's not a pirate it's modern times uh but it's like a seafaring thing again seafaring big huge at the time. So, again, they were going through everything that kids might like. Yeah, and this one reminds me of Captain Easy a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little more serious, but, but that was sort of the same uh, territory that they were doing in this one. Yeah. Uh, there's Buckskin Jim, the Trailblazer. I'd say this is one of the weakest ones. It's just in terms right. of the artwork where it's like these big empty panels where there's like nothing to look at. And so, you know, and it talks about the – the uh, merciless Indians are surrounding Buckskin Jim. So, well, you know, okay. Uh, <laughs> there's a uh, there's an article on popular science. There's an ad- article on stamps and co- I mean, this thing really is like a magazine. It really right. is less a comic book than it is a, a mag. There's a, there's an article on for young homemakers, uh, <laughs> which is amazing. I mean, it gets presumably it's ostensibly supposed to be read by by moms. So they again, they really I can't picture any mom. In 1935, reading this, but they really no, were trying. No, and and you know, and on one of the pages that we just skimmed over, uh, he says, "Tell your friends, you know, you uh, tell your friends you found fun. Write new fun, what you like best." He's asking them a lot, people a lot. You know, tell us what you want. He's yep. trying to make this as interactive as he can. Yep. You know, cut out the coupon and send it in, yep. and you know, we will, we will. We will uh, do better next time. We'll find yep. something that you like. Yep. There's a strip called After School. Again, it's just like school funnies about two kids. It's got kind of two like wise guy kids. You got a right. panel. We'll get, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I murderize you. It's that kind of – they kind of look like um, – they, they, they actually look like uh, little Lulu a little bit. I'd right. say the artwork with the little right. kind of like uh, ovals for eyes and stuff. Uh, the next strip is Caveman Capers. And this one I actually thought – was one of the best ones. Yes. Uh, just in terms of the artwork, it whoever I, I, the the artist the artist is listed. I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but it's whoever drew this. I think was probably one of the more uh, talented artists here because this is really uh, a very like the style to me is very complete here. It's got a very distinctive yeah. look. There's the, the intro panel explains what the, the strip is. There's this nice moment where there's a fire in the background, and they actually drew the word fire, uh, which I thought was kind of a nice touch because right. without color, you can't really tell that it's supposed to be fire. So this is really one of the better ones. It, it's, it's, to me, it's more fully realized than a lot of some of the other ones. It is. It, it, it's, it's, it's kind of alley-oopish a little mm-hmm. bit, but, it's, but it, is, it is fun. It is fun. It's, it's, yeah. it's aimed at you know little kids, but it's fun. And it even says down at the bottom, next fun, more comics, more fun. So that was eventually the title this book would take on, would become more comic, comics after a while. Uh, next is Fun Films, 
which is a in, in, you talked about interactive. This is an interactive ship where you are literally supposed to cut out the background panel and then put two slits in the side on the dotted lines, and then you're supposed to cut out the other strips and slide them in between the slits. They're kind of, actually yeah. really is sort of the early version of the die cut dioramas on the back right. of DC Treasuries, and you would run it through like a little film strip and. I'm sure a lot of kids did it, and again, they were. That, that's why this comic is so rare, is because probably there's no copies hardly left that aren't marred, because a lot of kids probably cut it up to make this little doodad here. That's right, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that in the early part of the 20th century, there was a comic strip called Film Funnies, Yes, which, which was something similar like this. Charlie Chaplin had his own comic strip, and so, you know, movies were new. Movies yep. were relatively new. This is 1930, what is this, 1935. 35. Movies had only been talking for, you know, five, six years at this point. Yep. Uh, there's another strip, Bubby and Beevil. <laughs> <laughs> and Bubby looks a lot like the guy yelling into the microphone yes. uh, on, the, on the table of content. So I'm guessing that Bubby is the sort of unofficial mascot of, of New Fun. Uh, this is the whole gist of this. Uh, and it looks very much like Caveman Capers. It's got the same open panel where the first panel where they're describing the action and the artwork is kind of similar. But the whole idea of Bubby and Beevil is that kids have got this imp, these two imps. One of is like a good imp and the other one is a bad imp. And the bad imp is constantly causing problems and the good imp is kind of trying to keep the bad imp from getting uh, getting out of hand. And like there's a thing where there's the kid doing his homework and the bad imp like dumps ink bottle all over the kid's homework. And he's like, he will be surprised, he he. And it's just basically the idea is you've got the good imp looking out for you and the bad imp who's a dick who's just trying yeah. to ruin your life. That's basically the idea of Bubby and Beevil. That's it. You know, it's very simple, but it's, it yep. gets the point across. Yeah. I, I like that. I love Beevil and his little, like, pork pie hat. He's kind of, again, he's very, very distinctive looking. Uh, the next trip is Pelion and Asa, which I would say is really one of the weakest ones yes. this, one, this one is funny animals it's a penguin and a bear but the artwork is i i, get, I think the person who drew this didn't i didn't know that they could pull in closer or something because no. it's like all these figures are tiny tiny in these panels from far away i this one was not really i don't think i i, I have my doubt that pelion and asa lasted very long no this does look like a little kid drew it i mean if, yeah. it were, if you're if you're eight and this is great but not maybe if you're 20 yeah yeah <laughs> uh right at the very bottom though, there's a separate little strip and it looks like the same character yes. from bubby and beevil except beevil here he's all frowny he's good like he's kind of mad and then someone throws a copy of new fun at him and he reads it and laughs so even though you're an evil imp new fun comics will, will make right. you laugh so there you go and then the final strip is one of the more ambitious ones 2023 super police uh which is basically again set in the future it's kind of a flash gordon buck rogers thing about this group of uh you know intergalactic sort of spacemen and they have like a futuristic car artwork wise it's okay yeah but i appreciate how much they're trying to cram in to just right. you know a couple of like 10 panels here yeah yeah and, it, it, you know, look, it's, for what he's trying to do, he's trying to get you, most of all, to buy the next issue. Yep. Um, and I would have bought it. If I were in 1935 mm-hmm. and had, had a dime, I would, I would definitely have bought this thing. Just think, we're only three, three years away from this. 
from yeah. the Super Police. So it's very exciting. Very exciting. Uh, and then finally on the back cover is the second and final color strip, which is Tom Mix and his Ralston Straight Shooters. Now, straight up, this is an advertisement. Yeah. It's in the guise of a comic strip, but it's an advertisement for Ralston Purina, which they even talk about in one of the uh, the, Roy, the Roy Thomas intro. Where It's straight up in – I mean, because there's a there's a, 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 a coupon you can write in. So it's, Tom Mix was massively popular in oh, 1935. Yeah. I mean, there was like a thousand short Tom Mix films, so it made sense that he would be a character that companies would license to sell their products. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and t- 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 if, if people aren't familiar with Tom Mix, I think it's Tony the Wonder Horse. They were as big <laughs> as like Roy Rogers and Gene Autry yeah. or Hopalong Cassidy yeah. later. Yeah. They, were, they were enormously popular. Yeah, so that, and that's the, that's the back cover. And it's sort of funny when you think about that, like this comic was trying to entertain you from literally page one to page 48. I mean, like right. it's got comic strips on the cover and the back cover. Uh, which is amazing. I mean, they're really trying to give you a lot of value for your dime. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. So, I mean, overall, it's a mixed bag, as all anthologies are. But you have to appreciate that this guy, Major Wheeler Nicholson, who they, there's an article about him right after this called The Major Who Made Comics, written by Nikki Wheeler Nicholson. I mean, this guy's an innovator. I mean, he was oh, thinking of something yeah. nobody had ever really tried before. No, you know, and I, I think if the best way to look at this for, for me, if I was ever teaching this in the class, this is a time capsule. Yeah. This is what 1935 was looked like. And I just looked at this up real quick last night. A gallon of gas in 1935 was 10 cents. A loaf of bread was eight cents. A new car cost about six hundred and twenty-five dollars. Mm. Uh, you know, this is in the middle of the depression. the The number one movie of the year, the Oscar winner of best year, was It Happened One Night. Mm. So, okay. I mean, this is a this is a time capsule of what life was like in the middle of the depression. Um, and and um, there's also another good book if anybody's interested in reading a little bit more by this Nikki Wheeler Nicholson called DC Comics Before Superman, where she includes a bunch of the early. Um, publications and comics that Wheeler Nicholson wrote or published, and it's really good. Um, it's not complete stories all the way through, but it tells about his adventurous life. This guy was uh, all over the world, and he fought with, the, uh, with General Pershing in Mexico after Pancho Villa, and he, he was in Siberia and in the Philippines, and he was this great you know, innovator. And what I th- the, the thing that I got most out of this in my comics class, I always talk about Action Comics number 31, the beginning of the superhero. But comics really did exist for, before superheroes. And there was this whole era that we kind of gloss over and get right to the, to the Superman and Batman and Captain America days. Right, right. I, you know, it's, it's so funny. They, and they reprint this in this little article. is Back in 1985, DC Comics released a one-shot called 50 Who Made DC Great, which was a sort of commemorative edition about 50 people that really were significant to the history of DC Comics. And I bought it because I loved all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, there's like an art, there's yeah. like a, and it was all one page biography. So it was like, you know, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, Bob Kane, uh, Jeanette Kahn, Neil Adams, stuff like that. And there was a page on Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. And I think at the time, I didn't hear, I had never heard of him before. And I, and it talks about that, how, how he founded DC Comics. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't, I had no idea. I, you know, that's fascinating. And then almost at the exact same time, uh, and there is a connection here, the film Fletch came out. 
Oh. Right? And I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies with, like, a great cult movie, Chevy Chase and Fletch. And the lead actress in that movie, the the love interest of Chevy Chase in the movie, is an actress named Dana Wheeler Nicholson. Oh. And I remembered thinking at the time – She's got to be related to him. I mean, how many Wheeler Nicholsons can there be? That's an unusual name. And then just forgot about it. But I remember even in 1985 at 14 years old, I was like, she must have some connection to that. And in fact, she is the granddaughter of Major Wheeler Nicholson. So, yes, the actress that you see in Fletch that he ends up with at the end of that movie is the granddaughter. So she has a direct connection (laughs) to DC Comics. So. Uh, and then there is a page on the contributors, and it gives you little bios of all the people that, that worked on uh, these strips, and it gives you you know little little one paragraph summaries. Then there is yet another little piece by Benjamin Leclerc, who is the manager of the DC Comics Library Archives, which I don't know sounds like a great job to me. Um, no, by the way, no sarcasm there. That legit sounds like a great job. And there is an he writes a little piece about the history of the D.C. treasuries. And it even features reprints of some of the beloved treasury ads, which you see here. And I, look, I loved that they're doing, I loved that they were doing this. I thought this was great. I thought it was nice that they were reprinting this book that probably didn't have a lot of commercial value, but they were doing it for history's sake. But the fact that they went out of the way to, to have an article written about the treasuries made me, just love this thing. I love that they took the time to get to write an article and dig up some of these old treasury ads to tell people about this format that, you know, has mostly come and gone. And so I am I am in love with this edition just for this article alone. I thought it was great. This is great. Uh, this whole, this whole volume is great and I'm I'm just like I said at the beginning, I'm just stunned that that they decided to do this. Um, and I, I think this is a good opportunity for people to to delve deep into DC Comics history. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there is there's 80 years worth of history out there, and and this is the foundation for all of it. Yeah, I I, lo- I love that they, they, they took the care to put this many uh, features around it. I mean, and I know that this is obviously only really going to be bought by diehard nerds like ourselves. So this stuff appeals to them. But I just thought they really could have just reprinted it. And pushed it out. But the fact that there's all these bios, the stuff about Major Wheeler Nicholson, the Treasury article, the intro by Bales, the double intro by Roy Thomas, just so much care went into it that I, I'm really, really impressed with DC Comics. They would do it. They even feature as a um, as a, an extra little bonus a photograph of the, the cover of the copy that DC has in their archives, which, as you can see, is beat to hell. It's, the, the spine is torn. There's writing all over it. I mean, that's the only copy they had apparently for many years. So I love that they included that too, that that's, uh, yeah. that's what they have laying around in their, in their library. Oh, well, if, if this guy, the, the treasury or archives editor quits, uh, oh. we, I'll have to fight you for that job. Oh I think my God. Me, but. <laughs> <laughs> we want that job so bad. So, um, and then the, the, the final detail that only an Uber treasury nerd loves, but I, I loved it. I loved it is that on the inside flap back flap, it lists the other famous first editions, right. which I thought was great. And it says Action Comics number one, Detective 27, Sensation one, Wiz Comics two, Batman one, Wonder Woman one, All-Star Comics one, Flash Comics one, Superman number one. Now, Superman number one 
Uh, it is famous for sedition. C sixty one. That's the that was the the numbering that they uh, the numbering on the treasuries were pretty was a little hinky, but they they did try on on some level to to have some sort of ongoing numbering system that you could track them. And I love that this comic, if you read the Indicia, is listed as famous first edition C sixty three. Oh that wow! The, that the book that this is this is another installment of this title. <laughs> I love the extra effort that they went to 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 call it that as opposed to just calling it Famous First Edition New Fun Comics, which would have been, you know, you would think standard. I love that in the annals of comic book history, this is another issue of this series that just happened to not publish anything since 1979. I, I nerded out so hard on that little detail. <laughs> well, then you deserve that job, not me, because uh, I never would have noticed that one. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I really can't say enough about this issue, it, it, this comic. It retails, I think, for $20. Uh, oh, it's, is, it's a value, whatever. Yeah, yeah you're, you're getting this nice hardcover book. It's actually even bigger than normal treasuries because New Fun Comics was actually 10 by 15, so it's a little bit bigger than – but it fits nice on your shelf. It looks beautiful. It's a, it's a handsome edition. I can't – like I said, I don't expect too many people out there to be buying it because it's, the features are just not what anybody really reads comics for anymore. When I knew DC was doing – Doing it, I knew I was going to get it, and I knew I had to cover it on the show because I just this is just everything I love about the, the treasuries and, and digging out this material. So I am so glad I got to do this with you, Chuck. Because again, like I said, I don't know hardly anybody else who bought this thing. Uh, well, well, I bought it, and uh, I, I would encourage everybody to buy it. It's 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 if, especially if you're a DC person, even if you're you know you're not into the 1930s. This is the first DC comic book, so you, you've got to read it. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a beautiful, handsome edition. They just did – they really did a great job with it, and I would love to see – I really hope DC continues on and does more yes. famous first editions and reprinting a lot of their books. I mean, look, they obviously uh, – in the when they – the original famous first editions, they focused on books from the 40s because that's when the famous that – was, that was – so many first editions came out, the first Superman, right. the first Batman. But, you know, DC has gotten – 70 years of history, 80 years of history, there's lots of books you could do famous first editions of. So I, I would love it if they keep doing these. I hope it sells well. I'm going to do my best at uh, doing this episode to, to, to point it out to people. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it for your local comic stores. Obviously, comic stores are not open, but I'm, bet, I'm betting they would mail and they would order it for you and ship it to you. And it's a, it's a, high, it's a high price point for them, so we'd probably – make a little bit of money for comic trip. So I, I really can't recommend it enough just as a piece of pop culture history. That's right. That's right. Well, again, Chuck, thank you so much for doing this, man. I, I always love talking to you. I'm so happy I got to include you on another one of the Fire and Water Network shows. <laughs> That's so exciting. So thank you so much for doing this. And why don't you tell people where they can find you on the Internet? Well, I'm, I'm uh, uh, my only social media is I'm the social media person for uh, the pop culture at, at Bowling Green State University. So I'm Dr. Pop Culture BGSU on Twitter, and I'm always posting things about television and movies and comics and romance novels. So <laughs> come, and, come and follow us. <laughs> thanks, Absolutely. thanks for the plug. Oh, no problem at all. So again, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. So thanks, everybody, for listening. I want you to stay tuned. We're going to run some podcast promos. I'm going to come back. I'm going to do some listener feedback. The Too Old, Too New Podcast. A show dedicated to reviewing books from the bins and recent reads. I'm Bill. And I'm Seth. Be sure to listen to us on our Too Old, Too New Comic Book Podcast, where we talk about two old comic books and two new comic books every episode. Comic book fans don't miss out. Too Old, Too New is available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play.
Batman Nightcast is back with new episodes and a new mission. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. The new Nightcast chronicles the Dark Knight Detective's greatest adventures from our favorite comic book creators. What a novel approach, talking about the comics we actually enjoy. I know, right? Highlights from this bold new era of Batman Nightcast include... The Joker's Laughing Fish. The Saga of Ra's al Ghul. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yes. Okay. Batman vs. the Man Bat. And the first appearance of villains like Clayface 3 and the Ventriloquist. Plus more great stories by the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Alan Grant and Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Irv Novick. Don Newton. Doug Munch. Dick Sprang. Max Allen Collins. No, what? Just messing with you. Wasn't funny. Batman Nightcast, every month from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And we're back with listener feedback, and this is the feedback for episode 46 of the show, which was Justice League of America with Jennifer DeRoss. Um, before I get to the comments from the website, which is finewaterpodcast.com, I want to say uh, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review of the show. There hasn't been a new iTunes review for Treasury Cast since November of 2019, and I really would appreciate some new iTunes reviews. Uh, it always it helps get the show noticed. So, again, I really would appreciate it, and I promise to read uh, any review you leave on Apple Podcasts, any five-star review in full here on the show. So, okay, let's get to the website, fryingwaterpodcast.com. First up is Edo Boznar, who says, Shotgun, or whatever else you call it when you make the first comment, a thoroughly enjoyable discussion on one of the classic treasuries. Yes, that cover image is truly iconic, and yes, I well recall the Super Friends opening sequence that used it. And what a great guest, someone who literally wrote the book on Gardner Fox. Hopefully Jennifer can come back for future shows. And then Ado left a second comment where he said, Yeah, just remembered on the topic of Rob's mystification over the pairing of Aquaman and Dr. Fate, I have to say that while Jennifer's response to the conundrum is certainly intriguing, I think it's more simple. It's because they are both just so damn cool. Agreed, Ado. Uh, yes, and also agreed that uh, hopefully Jennifer can come back for future shows. I would love to talk to her pretty much on any of uh, the shows I do on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I wonder if she likes Bob Dylan. Uh, Martin Gray uh, from the Two Dangerous for a Girl blog uh, says, uh, what a treat, a great issue, and yet another great guest. I've only read the first of these stories, but loved it. I'm sure I like the other one, too. The comments about Mike Sikowski's art looking alternately lovely and awkward are spot on. I rather love his wonkiness. I remember when he was working on Supergirl. Even the kindest of women wore an evil smirk. Regarding Ken Jervo's double not being evil, perhaps it was a nature versus nurture deal, and the original had a really rough upbringing that turned him bad, whereas the newborn was a clean slate. The new splash pages remind me of something that annoyed me even as a kid, the sexism and the way Wonder Woman was always written in a cursive, girly fashion, a la her original cover logo, Just Me. No, it isn't just you, Martin. I noticed that myself buying the old issues of Justice League when I was a kid and, and always wondered why Wonder Woman is written differently. I think they had pretty much – DC got rid of um, the roll call feature uh, in the by, by the late 60s, and by that point, Black Canary had joined, and uh, I think they realized how out of date that was. But, but yeah, in the early 60s, it was, it was like, yeah, why does Wonder Woman's logo – why does Wonder Woman's roll call name look different than the rest of the guys? Just because she's a woman? Is that what it is? And I always figured that that's what it was. It just seemed seemed weird to me at the time, and uh, I'm glad – again, I'm glad I'm not the only one who noticed it. Uh, Matt Sir Royce says, yes, I've been waiting anxiously for you to cover this book. Thanks, Rob. Another great episode and an amazing guest. Thank you, Jennifer, for joining in. Growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, the Justice League of America was the ultimate comic book. Literally the world's greatest
animated superheroes. This book is a treasured possession for the front and back covers alone. I also enjoyed the two-page spread, which appears to be a housewarming party as the JLA move into the satellite and install the final pieces of equipment. They should also be preparing to jettison Snapper out of the airlock, since it was his fault they had to give up the secret sanctuary. Anyway, looking forward to the next episode. Yes, totally co-signed to that, Matt. I've always hated Snapper Carr, and I would have been perfectly happy if the JLA had shot him out uh, to asphyxiate in the uh, coldness of space. He doesn't deserve to be there. I will die on this cell. Anyway, little Russell Burbridge, of course, has been on this very show. said, a great show and a great guest. I had seen Jennifer's biography of Gardner Fox and had thought of buying it. Now I definitely will add it to my wants list. This book is probably my favorite treasury and one of the few that I still have some 40 years later. Not sure if people know that this cover is a restyling of the back cover of the 1976 DC calendar. It had the same characters flying out from the DC logo, except instead of Aquaman, it had Rob's nemesis, Captain Marvel, with art by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. So I think this, and conversely the JSA version, were redone by Giordano only, although Hawkman and Green Arrow look as if they were swapped straight with no changes, and the others, like Superman and Green Lantern, have only the most minor changes. Anyway, I love the two-page spread and use it as my base on how to draw the JLA forever. This Hawkman is still my favorite version, bar none. Of course, I would have liked to have seen Hawk Girl slash Woman included here. Funny how she missed all these group shots. Sure, she wasn't a member at this particular time, but she joined within a year. Julia Schwartz could have given the artist a heads up. Yeah, agree to that. It's a shame that Hawk Girl's not included. Uh, it's the one black mark on my favorite comic of all time, Jelly 200, that she's not included. Uh, and yeah, I did completely forget about um, th- that this image appears on the DC calendar. Uh, maybe the fact that Aquaman's not on it, and, uh, and as you said, replaced by Captain Marvel, <laughs> uh, is the reason I blotted it out. So uh, thanks for reminding me of that pain, Russell. Chris Franklin from our network says, Russell beat me to one on the DC calendar connection. Ah, there it is again. I have a very nice copy of the calendar, which is why the Batman page is now being used for the Nightcast banner here on the site. I have a Toon Tumblr glass with the JSA back cover image on it, one of the few non-action figure JSA pieces I own. Oh, and Jennifer would probably be happy to know that the Hawkman image from the set was swiped for a Hawkman card in the deck of Flash playing cards released by the Russells uh, in the 1970s. Speaking of Jennifer, she was a great guest. I was unaware of her book on Gardner Fox, but will definitely be seeking it out. The only bits about Fox I know come from Roy Thomas's All-Star Companion book series. I agree that Fox is probably the most underrated creator in comics history, given how many characters and concepts he co-created that are still relevant today. I'm pretty hot and cold on Sikowski's art. I appreciate it, but I still wonder what a JLA book would have looked like drawn by Gil Kane, Carmen Infantino, or Murphy Anderson, who did draw many of the covers back then. His slightly thicker Joker looks a little Nicholson-esque in the pages shown here. Oh, and those Super Friends model sheets. I actually want this treasury just for these. And the Golden Age Flash. My mind is blown. Somehow I've never seen this. Oh, if only Jay had shown up on the Super Friends. Instead, we get a whole season of Marvin. Sigh. Great episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Shot at Marvin aside. Yeah. It is a darn shame we never got to see any of the Golden Age characters on uh, the Super Friends cartoon. That just would have been amazing. And yeah, I had that Flash card set. What a weird little piece of product. Like the Flash appeared on a card set in the 1970s. But I had that. I don't know what happened to it. I lost it over the years. But but yeah, I believe that that Hawkman image is in there. It's a Strange, strange little, strange little piece. Um, thank you, as always, Chris. Uh, Gothos Mansion says, really enjoyed the show. I must say I am jealous of Jennifer having a grandmother who was encouraging her to read Superman and Batman. My grandmother, think Granny Goodness, only meaner, whoa, uh, was always screaming at me, I'll be glad when you outgrow that Batman. 
Either this or Marvel Treasury Edition 14, but Spider-Man was my first treasury. Looking at the on-sale date, I think it must have bought the JLA Treasury at a store that didn't normally carry comics and didn't return their stock. Predates the first four comics I got when I began collecting. Uh, yeah, I got this. Uh, a lot of the treasuries hung on a lot longer than their uh, presumed on-sale dates. I think maybe that was because of the um, higher price point. And so maybe newsstand vendors or, or whoever else was carrying them was willing to hold on to them longer because they were a bigger sale. Uh, so, yeah, I found a lot of treasuries, I think, probably months after they were technically not on sale anymore. Anyway, he continues. I can't remember a lot from when I was a kid, but I do recall looking at the splash page uh, that showed Superman wearing glasses and wearing, oh, no, Superman is going to recognize that he's Clark. I've mentioned superheroes versus super gorillas being my gateway drug to Superman and Flash fandom. So obviously the cover was irresistible since it had Batman, Superman, and Flash on it. As a kid, I loved the key since I didn't recognize a lot of the people on the satellite pinup or the Justice Society back cover. I was particularly intrigued by the back cover inclusion of Dr. Fate and Dr. Midnight. I thought they looked cool. As much as I enjoyed the story featured, I kind of wish it had a JLA-JSA story so that it could have been a gateway drug to fandom for some of the other JSA characters. And then Gene uh, Papa follows up with, he says, another great episode, and I've read Jennifer's book. It's well worth getting. Uh, I also have a special affection for this treasury, although if I had been the one putting it together back in 1976, I think I instead would have chosen issues 29 and 30, the Crisis on Earth 3 epic that not only included the JSA, but introduced the crime syndicate as well. And having crossover stories at least would have been better justified having the JSA image on the back cover of the treasury. Yeah, uh, it's a shame that – I mean I, I'm happy that they did the stories they did, but I just wish that DC had done another JLA treasury. JLA was a big seller in the 70s. They well-deserved another treasury, and that could have been like a JLA, JSA treasury collect, you know, together. So it's a shame that they never did that. Um, you know, it would have been fun to do a part one and part two, as you suggest. So it's, it's I mean, they definitely, DC could have done one less Rudolph to make room for it on the schedule for Pete's sake. So anyway, thanks everybody for the comments. I really appreciate it. Uh, one little uh, note I will mention a couple of you talked about your particular affection for the JLA pinup in this issue. And I will say that the JLA pinup figures large in a later episode of Treasure Cast coming down the line. I won't say any more than that, but just keep that in mind that the uh, the pinup will make a sort of reappearance on this show uh, in due time. So uh, that is going to do it for this episode of Treasure Cast. Big, big thanks to Chuck Coletta for stopping by. I always love talking to Chuck, having him on uh, any of my shows here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and I'm so glad I had a chance to talk about this book because I love it, and I just didn't know anybody else that got the darn thing, so I was so happy to be able to do a show on this edition. You should go out and buy it. It's a really, really handsome book. So, uh, of course, we're always talking uh, Treasury Comics over on Twitter, at Treasury Comics. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on Spotify. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is, the, is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So if you want to support Treasury Cast, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Help keeps the Fine Water Podcast Network going. So that's going to do it for this episode of Treasury Cast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Come back next month, and until then... Go big or go home. DC. Incredible. Action. Astonishing. Adventure. The coolest heroes. The bravest heroines. And the most outrageous TV in the universe. DC Comics. Read them and love them. 